0: There are times in my life when I can be an incredibly insecure person. I have this very distinct memory of when my family first moved to Houston, Texas. I was 12 years old. And we were moving to this huge city. I was coming from Louisiana. I was going into the 7th grade. Yeah, yeah seventh grade. Our, our church had a youth group and it was going to a football game, a, low, a high school football game. It was like the first thing I did with this church and the youth group. I didn't know anybody. And Danny was this really popular, really tall, great athlete, basketball playing guy in my grade. And he kind of took me as a friend, and so on the bus, as the youth, youth group's going to the football game, he asked me to sit with him. And, and I can still see us. We're sitting there in the bleachers. And all these people were wanting to be by Danny. And people would come up and say hi to him. And I asked Danny the same question over and over and over. That guy who just came and talked to us, is he popular? That girl that said hi, is she popular? See that kid over there? And every time I this memory comes to me, I feel this shame. I mean, it was this shameless, really kind of pesky little 12-year-old kind of begging to be in the popular crowd. You see, I knew that the world is full of somebodies and nobodies. And that like a lot of people, I knew it was better to be somebody than it was to be nobody. You see, I always grew up a little bit poorer than my neighbors and not quite as smart as the gifted and talented kids in class and not quite as athletic as my big brother. I never got it. I was on the second string of the B team football in seventh grade. You know, that's where like the girls and Aubrey were. Not even all the girls. Some of them made the A team. I, I was never one of the good-looking kids. I was always a little bit behind all of the other kids, it seems like. And so I have this distinct memory from growing up of being just slightly outside of the circles that I was convinced would have been more fun if I could have been in those circles. Because I knew, like I said, that this world is full of somebodies and nobodies and it sure beats the heck Out of being in the nobodies, if you can get into the somebody circle. This passage of scripture that Grace, thanks for reading, that Grace read to us from 1 Corinthians. This gives us a glimpse into the life of a church that must have been filled with insecure people like me. People who wanted to be somebodies. Now, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul Has written to this small church in the ancient Mediterranean city of Corinth. And when you read the letter, you learn that the Corinthian church is filled with cliques and divisions and factions, and they base all their little groups and subgroups and gangs, they base it on who's rich and who's not rich. On who has this particular gift and who doesn't have that particular gift. Who lives at this level of lifestyle and who has that lifestyle. And who's got this viewpoint on politics and who's got that viewpoint. And while there are a number of reasons that the Corinthian church has splintered into all of these groups. One of the main reasons is because Roman Corinth. Corinth was a Roman town. Roman Corinth ...was a proud city. You see, Rome had actually destroyed Corinth... ...raised it to the ground... ...and it was uninhabited for years and years and years. And then Rome said let's put a new city there and a bunch of people showed up who were scrappy entrepreneurs who were freedmen, former slaves and couldn't get any respect in the other Roman cities but here's a new city, an upstart city. We can make a name for ourselves there, right? We can scratch out a way. So it was filled with a bunch of people who had pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they were proud. Actually at this point in time, Corinth was a more prestigious city than Athens. It was huge, And it was a very impressive city. And impressive by people who made it impressive. Who had scratched it out of the ground. And in Corinth, there were somebodies and there were nobodies. And there were three distinct paths in Corinthian society to becoming a somebody. Their society was a little like ours, but a little different. The way... The path to fame, the path to being of somebody in Corinth was through accomplishments, through money, or through pedigree, through heredity. Your heredity. You could become somebody through intellectual accomplishments. Ernie, when he was preaching a couple of weeks ago, mentioned to us that the philosophers, the intellectual leaders, they were the rock stars of Corinth. They put such a huge value on it that when this guy walked into town and he had all his disciples around him, everybody wanted his resume. You, if you could succeed and stand out in the arena of intellect, then you could get a table at the best restaurant anytime you want it. They also loved it when somebody would have uh, political or military or business accomplishments. And finally, there was a the whole issue of breeding, of pedigree. If you came from the right family, you were definitely a somebody. You see, they all got there as nobodies, but as soon as they became somebodies, they started perpetuating their family names. The wives, the powerful, the noble these were the somebodies. Of the Corinthian society, but most of the Corinthian Christians were not from that group. They were nobodies. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. See, if you were looking for the intellectual leaders of Corinth, if you were looking for powerful people or people of privilege, you didn't look in the church. These Christians, they did not, most of them, some of them did, but most of them did not come from well-known families. They didn't have any social power. Some did, but not the majority. In the eyes of the Corinthian community at large, when they looked at the Christians... They were just not people they noticed. They didn't count. Socially, they were nothing. So Paul, the author of this letter, tells this church that is so full of pride and arrogance and boasting and divisions based on this and that. He tells them, consider where you came from. Consider your calling. Remember who you were when God chose to be your friend. He's saying, hey, direct your attention. Summon to your mind's eye this image of who you were and who God is and the gap between you and the fact that he didn't give a rip about that gap. Remind yourself of that. Consider that. Think about this. Hardly any of you were impressive. You weren't educated. You weren't influential. You were not well-connected people. I love verse 27. Verse 27. But God. Paul likes to do this. He'll describe a scenario according, in the world, and then he loves to insert, but God. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose... What is low and despised in the world. And look, that's them. That's the Corinthian Christians. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Out of all the inhabitants of the world, God chose those whom the world considered foolish over the intellectual elite. Out of all the inhabitants of Corinth, God chose the people who had no influence over the people that got invited to all the right parties. Out of all the inhabitants of Corinth, He chose those who were lowly over those of noble birth. This is amazing. Against all human wisdom, God preferred the nobodies over the somebodies. He's taken to himself. Paul is saying, God called you, God chose you, God chose you, God chose you. God has taken you to himself. He has taken to himself people whom the world judges. They are not worthy of even noticing when you walk down the street. These are the people that when you walk into the party, you don't even see them. You walk right next to them, right past them to shake the other person's hand. God's love for nobodies and the nothings, the people who are discounted, the non-entities, Paul says, this shames the world. It shames me as that 12-year-old boy who only wanted to know who was cool and who was not cool. And Paul is saying this shames the world for its standards. God is shaming the world for having such a messed up valuation system. God's love for the insignificant people in our world puts our world to shame. And why? Why did God do it this way? God could have called to himself the the mayor of Corinth. He could have called to himself the intellectual leaders. He could have wooed and overwhelmed and absolutely converted those with social capital. But he didn't. Why did God do it this way? Why when God moved into Corinth and began to build a church, remember four weeks ago when we're talking about what it means to be a church, Ecclesia, called out. There's all this energy. God is building our church. Why is God bringing us together? Why in Corinth did he bring that group together? Why didn't he start the church by calling to himself the wise and the articulate and the well-bred and the gifted and the wealthy and the powerful? He could have, but why didn't he? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, in the Greco-Roman society of Corinth, your value as a human being was based on your education, your wealth, and your family. But the cross of Christ turns the world upside down. See, when Paul looks at the Corinthians through the cross, he sees that the people God chose in Corinth, the people he pulled to himself in Corinth, it's the way he's always acted. There's this famous song in the Old Testament called Hannah's Song. Hannah's Song, where she's begging God to to bless her. And then there's Mary's, the Magnificat. And she does the same thing where she's overwhelmed that God uses the lowly of the world. God is all, He always is picking not the firstborn, but the secondborn, the mess up, the jokester, the trickster. He's always picking the woman who has gone all the way through her childbearing years and can't have any babies in a society where that's what makes a woman valuable. He's always picking. The underdog. And when Paul looks at the cross, he sees that that's even the way God acted when he came into this world. He totally turned the world's value system upside down. God chose to save the world, not through military might, political muscle, but through a murder. That's upside down. And we see this pattern all the way. God has elected to shame the wise and the powerful people of this world by creating communities of Christians all over this world whom the world does not value. Do you know that Christianity is by far, by far the largest religion in the world? And it is absolutely despised by the intellectual elite of our day. All you have to do is go to university and find out that the rock stars of the university are a little too smug They know a little too much to be here. Why did God do it that way? Why do you have to be a dork to be a Christian? Because pride is evil and wicked. And God is in the habit of bringing the proud to their knees. Verse 30. Because you see, He is the source of your life, not your intellectual capabilities, not your influence. The source of your life is God. And so long as you've got a bootstrap mentality, you can't come near to God. You have no need of God. That's why God does this. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul is reminding the Corinthian Christians that their salvation, their incredible life, is because they are in Christ. Not because of what they can do with their hands or their mind or their money or their social connections. It's because they're in Christ. And all of a sudden, Paul, who's been disparaging wisdom throughout all of chapter 1, it seems like, right? He's been picking on this idea of wisdom. He's been taking pot shots at it. All of a sudden, he turns the table and he defines true wisdom. Now that he's deconstructed their idol of wisdom, he says, but wait a minute. There is such a thing as wisdom, and it is Christ. Christ Jesus, whom God has made our wisdom. He's saying, Corinthians, you're in love with influence and power. You're in love with where wisdom will get you. You've picked the wrong wisdom. You really love wisdom? It's Jesus Christ. Christ is true wisdom. Wisdom, this thing that the Corinthians are so fixated on. Paul is saying, look, it's become an idol for you. I've got to tear it down, but right next to your idol is the truth. Wisdom is something you should long for and chase after. You've just identified it as the wrong thing. Wisdom. To find real wisdom, you must first renounce your own wisdom and become a fool in the eyes of the world. You see the virgin birth, the wrath of God poured out. On on Christ, because Christ was taking into himself our sin, that we really deserve the wrath of God to absolutely annihilate and destroy us. You have to be a fool in today's culture and in the Corinthian culture to buy that line. You've drunk the red Kool Aid, these are foolish things but in 1st Corinthians verse chapter 1 verse 30 he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God has made wisdom and righteousness and sanctification do, do you see here the absolute inseparability of salvation from Jesus Christ verse 30 could not exist apart from Jesus Jesus is the subject on which the pred- he is the subject on which salvation in this verse depends there is no salvation apart from Christ you can't get there, Corinthians, by thinking your way there or earning your way there. or influ- You can't be saved apart from Christ. But when you do open yourself up, when you do allow Jesus to become wisdom, the thing that you pursue, when you do that, then you can receive righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Those last three terms in verse 30. Righteousness, sanctification, and, and redemption. They're actually metaphors. And they're metaphors from different segments of society. What Paul is doing in verse 30 is he's defining salvation by, by letting us look at it from, in a different profile through each metaphor. You know, if you see someone's profile from one angle, and then from another angle, you're like, oh... <laughs> Or, um, What he's doing is he's taking salvation like a a a piece of sculpture or a piece of art or a diamond. He's holding it up and he's saying, look at it through this metaphor, then tick. See it through this profile. See it through that. one. Righteousness. This was a legal metaphor. It came out of the judicial system. It's a metaphor. It's an image of a judge who is passing a binding judgment. In favor of the accused. It's a judge hitting the gavel and saying, not guilty. And that, the moment he says that, it becomes your status. It's legally binding. It is your status. In that moment, you are made forgiven. You are made righteous. The idea is not that you haven't committed the crime and the court figured out you're actually innocent. No, the idea here is that you are guilty. You have committed the crime, but the judge in one fell swoop, like a president signing a... um, What's that thing he signs? No, at the end of his term, he lets everybody off a pardon. It's like a president signing a pardon. Yes, the person did commit it. doesn't matter if they did or didn't. But now in the eyes of, of the legal system of the day, all is done. Now you have the status of being forgiven in Christ. You're accepted by God as totally forgiven. And then he takes salvation and he turns it another tick. And he uses this word sanctification. And this was a metaphor from the Jewish religion. You see, the Jewish religion had a temple. And in that temple there were certain tools, certain objects that were sanctified. They were set apart to be used... For worship and they couldn't be used for anything else. To be sanctified in Christ. Means that God has looked at Esther. And he has pulled her close. And he said she's for me and for no one else. He's pulled her in. It's the idea of closeness and proximity. And intimacy. And possession. God looked at some tongs in Israel and He said those belong in the temple. They're to be used for worship and for nothing else. They are set apart. To be sanctified is to be grabbed by God and pulled in close to His heart. It's this incredible, intimate privilege of a metaphor. Redemption, this last metaphor, it comes from the Greco-Roman world of the slave market. It's the picture of being bought At an incredible price from a hostile force. In Christ we are redeemed. We are bought. We are rescued from the labyrinth of sin and Satan and death. Christ has ransomed us at the incredible price of his own life from death and Satan. And if you're not a Christian, you are enslaved. If you are not a Christian, you really are enslaved by Satan and you are in need of a rescue and deliverance. And if you would make the wise decision to choose the way of Christ, to become a fool in the eyes of the world, then you will be rescued. You will be judged by God, forgiven. And you will be drawn and set apart to be close to the Father's heart. You will belong to God. Now, all of this is what God does only through Christ. There is no... It is only in Christ that this occurs. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Now, look at verse 31. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, this is really the climax of the whole chapter. All these problems, Corinthians, all this bragging you do, your problem goes all the way to your theology. Paul's solution to all the pride and all the insecurity of the church in Corinth is to teach them that salvation did not come to them because of their social status or their wealth or their heredity. Indeed, it came to most of them in spite of their social status, their lack of wealth, in spite of the fact that they were nobodies. Salvation is in Christ. It is in nothing else. Salvation is not some self-help scheme. Salvation is a radical rescue from slavery. Now, to wrap all of this up, let me ask you some questions because it's always fun to read somebody else's mail, right? To read Paul talking to the Corinthians. But if Paul was writing a letter to you, because indeed God is writing this letter to you. I mean, how would he slice and dice this? How much of your self-worth and your identity is wrapped up in your wealth or your education? Or who says hi to you and who ignores you? Did you know that Greek literature had a huge influence on, on Corinthian society? And it's funny because when you read the famous Greek literature and you look at these struggles that the Corinthians are having, it comes right out of the Iliad. It comes right out of the... Of, think about this. In Homer's Iliad, Odysse, Odysseus boasts... In the thing that delights him the most. And it's his guile. His cleverness. And Achilles. Boasts in the thing that. That he gets the most delight in. He glories in his strength. And that that was Corinthian society. They were learning from Greek literature. That you should boast in your strength. What about you? What is. The literature, what is the culture of of our society? How is it influencing you? What is it that you most delight in and that you glory in and that you boast in? Is it your home, your beauty, your children, your achievements, your possessions? What we're seeing in this letter is that boasting, even if it is about good works, harms your soul. Boasting breaks you. It messes you up. You cannot boast and not be negatively affected by that boast. Anyone who boasts of worldly achievements is a worldly person. It's sad, but the Christians in Corinth, they continued to dance to the piper that played their favorite cultural tune. This idea of social advancement through hard work and wealth and intellectual prowess. And they bragged about it. Do you? Do you evaluate yourself according to the standards of this world? Are you like me, that little 12-year-old boy sitting in the bleachers, totally buying into the world's standards? And evaluating yourself based on where you sat in the lunchroom. We keep doing that as we become adults. We just get more sophisticated at hiding it, don't we? Not quite so crass as asking the guy next to us, Do I measure up? Do I measure up? Do you like me? Here's another question. Are are your values in life, the things you really long for, are they dictated by our culture or are they dictated by a world turned upside down by the cross of Christ? Your attitude about money and family and country, are they grounded in the incredible grace of God in the biblical story or are they grounded in our culture's story? Look at it this way. Reading this passage of Scripture that we've been reading for the last month or so, you can see that Paul was not impressed by the dominant ...intellectual trends of his day. For him, the deeper wisdom of God... ...was the criterion for evaluating... ...all the shifting opinions of the intellectuals. And it's not that Paul is advocating... ...some cheap anti-intellectualism. What we see here is a lesson... in in, ...in evaluating the intellectual trends... ...according to the cross... It's not about some shallow, unexamined faith. It's a challenge to not be a lemming. There's this Christian scholar that I was reading last, this past week who was a, a, a devout atheist, and a committed atheist, and a rather vocal, intellectual atheist of his day. And he, he became a Christian. And he said, My conversion involved embracing the very shame against which I had once revolted. I was no longer intellectually fashionable. The cross had crucified my respectability. And finally, I was free to pursue unfettered the truth. Has the cross crucified your respectability? Are you still that 12-year-old boy? Are you still carping after respect in the eyes of your peer set? One last thing. God saves only those who are humble enough to turn to Jesus Christ to save them. And He longs for you to be saved. So He will humble you one way or another. Because humility is the only route to the cross. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Because if you are not wise enough to do that, you need to know that at the end of the day, God will humble you. You will see the cross for what it is. So what about it? Are you a status hungry person? Who's rejecting the wisdom of God? If you are. And if you're open to a conversation. Please contact me. I would love to talk with you. About what you're going through. About what it means to be a Christian. To come alongside of you and to pray with you about this incredibly humiliating but life-giving choice. For those of you who have turned to Christ, for those of us who've turned to Christ, we need to be reminded that the cross has turned the world upside down and it's turned the value system of this world upside down. And the way of Christ is the way of life. It's the source of true life. It's wisdom. And even though this world is filled with somebodies and nobodies, that whole way of acting does neither one of them any good. And that's not the way God intended it to be. And it's not the way the church is to live. Let's pray.